Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm having a conversation with Alex Hillman, who is the founder of Indie Hall, one of the longest-running co-working communities in the world in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His personal mission is to help people become truly excellent collaborators so they can work better together. Love the mission. I'm excited to dig into everything you're working on. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks for having me, Paul. So it seems that something that might describe you is a word that I love, generosity. And you seem to be very generous with your time. You're very quick responding. When I reached out, you're generous with your thoughts, your ideas, helping the co-working movement. Where does all this spirit of generosity come from? It's a really good question. I mean, my immediate reaction is I don't know another way. And obviously, I know another way. Um, I mean, I guess if I, I peel it back a little bit, I, I think some of it is a response to people who were generous with me early in my career. Um, a couple of names come to mind in particular, um, uh, Tara Hunt and Chris Messina. Um, Tara is a, and has been sort of a, a luminary in the online marketing world in, in um, not digital marketing specifically, but thinking about, online spaces, online communities, and sort of the way people gather around ideas and brands and things like that. Um, and her and uh, Chris Messina, who is probably most famous for inventing the hashtag, um, oh, wow. which is a, an interesting credential to be able to tout, um, the two of them ran an agency in San Francisco called Citizen Agency that I, I came across um, early in my, my freelance career as a web developer. And I remember reading some of their 
blog posts and essays and talks, and they were working with a lot of you know Silicon Valley Bay Area companies, and sort of talking about this 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 notion, this idea that encouraged companies and organizations to uh, to if they if they cared about the people who they were trying to bring together and gather in in, in I don't, don't want to say an authentic way because the word authentic sounds so trite now, but to to actually care, um, to be generous, sort of the more you give, the more you get, but only if you give to give, not to get, um, which is a complicated thing to try and teach uh, a lot of, especially you know bigger corporations, but. The thing that I remember the most from reading what they wrote and listening to their talks was they were saying the things that I thought, but was too afraid to say out loud. Um, and a lot of that came down to sort of uh, an intrinsic belief that I have is that you know business does not need to be about transactions. Obviously, business requires transactions in order to continue to grow and thrive. But for me, business is not about the transaction. The transaction is the result of getting everything else right. And they were articulating that in such a, an interesting and powerful way. And they weren't being, you know, strung up in the town square about it. And if anything, they, you know, business were flocking to them to say, teach me how this works, teach me how to build communities, teach me uh, how to really understand who our customers are, who our clients are, who our communities are. And not only that, but they were really generous with me uh, as a, you know, a fresh freelancer who was eager to learn and uh, eager to try. And I feel like they, I owe a lot of my, my career to those early experiences with them. And I think a lot of my approach to generosity in, in my, my professional life really stems from that realization as you know, other people gave to me. Uh, I think it only makes sense to, to give where I can. And in, in every scenario that I can, I can think of where I've had a challenge in my life, it's the people who in the past, perhaps I was, uh, I had an opportunity to be, to be generous to them, with them, with no expectations. And those are the people that when, when you need them most are the ones who are going to turn around and, and help you out. So um, I think it really, a lot of it comes down to that fundamental belief of, of, of my approach to business, which is, it's all, it's all about the people. It's all about the relationships and the relationships track so much more importantly than the transactions. Um, so focusing on those relationships is kind of what makes everything tick. That's an amazing early experience. It's so ingrained in so many people in the business world. And they'll listen to what you just said and say, well, yes, but bottom line, right? And right. I think that the challenge with that, and you write about this when you're talking about co-working business models, is you present two options, right? You start with the business model, you start with finding your first 10 people. And it's a completely different mindset, right? At the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's a matter of where your attention is. Um, you know, for me, I can't imagine figuring out a business model if I don't deeply understand the people who I'm trying to serve. That's another part of it, I think, is, you know, when you think about generosity, another word that sometimes comes up is service. Um, I, and a, you know, a business's job is to serve a customer. And if you don't understand the customer, if you don't deeply connect, not that you need to, like, spend 
your life with that customer, but you really need to understand the customer um, in order to understand how you can help them and what their priorities are and what they pay for and how they prefer to pay for it. And the more you can understand all of those things, that's where the, the business model comes from, from that understanding. So yeah, it is an, it's an inversion um, of, of a lot of what we see in sort of business media and, and sort of um, you know, startup culture and things like that is, you know, come up with an idea and then figure out who, who wants it. Um, that never made sense to me. Um, even, even in my, you know, being attracted to, you know, technology and apps and, and even having the skills to build them. Um, I always sort of saw for myself, the difference between there's the opportunities to sort of build and tinker, and it might resonate with somebody, but I'm 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 lucky if it does. Whereas I can be strategic and choose a group of people who I have some connection to, the opportunity to build some relationship with, and the the presence to build an understanding of. And if I do that, the result will be I will understand their problems as well or better than they do. And then from there. I can turn those problems into business opportunities. And that's really been my entire career. And you were in a good position when you started co your co-working space because you were scratching your own itch and trying to create a space that solved your own needs at the time. That's true. That's true. Well, that's true. That's true. And, and not at the same time. Um, the, the itch that I was scratching wasn't that I needed a space. It was that I did not know where my my other people were i didn't know who the other freelancers and entrepreneurs in in the city of philadelphia were and it stood to reason that there were others but i had no idea where where on earth i would find them um and so the goal was not to create a place the goal was just to find those people once i found them spent time with them i started understanding oh wait there are some patterns here um and the club eventually was all but asking for the clubhouse. Um, so, so I think that's an important distinction and, and tracks with everything we've been talking about so far um, that, that my goal wasn't. And frankly, to this day, if I could do what I do without being responsible for a physical space, um, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about what the next generation of, of this looks like. And ultimately the worst part of running a co-working space is the space. <laughs> Right. The responsibility for the real estate. Uh, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so in many senses, though, it sounds like you're still running a clubhouse. Yes. Yes. That's very true. That's amazing. And how have you ended up there? And so many people have ended up creating occupancy-based businesses, as you call it. Oh, boy. That's a real good <laughs> question, Paul. Um, <laughs> so. Um, one, one of the things that has been interesting, as, maybe we as, back up a bit and just kind of sure. uh, lay the groundwork of, uh, what kind of space you have and yeah. it might even be helpful just to give like a brief 60 second intro in terms of what's happened with a co-working space, because I think a lot has changed in the last 10 years. Absolutely. So when, when we started, uh, down this path, 
there were not a lot of other options to look at. There were maybe a half a dozen people doing something called co-working in the United States um, and, and a few more around the world. And most of them knew each other, <laughs> um, having identified with this word co-working. And I was introduced to it by that the, the duo I mentioned earlier, Chris Messina and Tara Hunt. They actually started one of the first dedicated spaces in the Bay Area called, I mentioned they'd Citizen Agency, they created Citizen Space. I saw them create Citizen Space and saw how it um, uh, could be, be an inspiration in many ways for the problem that I was seeing here in, in my, own, my own region. Um, and so, like I said, it was the club clubhouse model. The other part of what, what we developed, um, we were one of the first spaces that actually had a membership model. Um, every other space before us was either a, a co-op of some sort um, which is super cool. I think co-ops are incredible models. Um, it didn't quite fit right for what we wanted to accomplish. Um, and then the other version is like what Citizen Agency was, which was effectively uh, an agency subsidization. So uh, what I, I didn't have an agency to subsidize the space that people were asking for. And so we had to come up with a direct membership model, um, which is roughly what the vast majority of co-working spaces in the world appear to use today. Um, the really important thing about the way Andy Hall was developed, though, and this sort of clubhouse model that we've been talking about is um, the the creation of the physical place, which is now we're, in our, we're entering into our 13th year. We've moved locations a couple of times we've expanded a number of times we are um like eight times bigger than we eight to ten times bigger than we were when we first started now the thing that has been consistent from the very beginning is the the creation process is a got ongoing and be collaborative in that anything that is good at Indie Hall is there because members helped create it or or entirely created it um the original space is more like a barn raising process than the opening of an office or a facility. And even the word facility kind of makes, makes me itchy. Um, Cause I don't think of you know, a facility feels very, not just transactional, but it feels very static. Like I created this for you. Um, yeah. And I didn't create Indie Hall for anybody. I created Indie Hall with a group of people and we continue to this day to create and recreate the environment at Indie Hall both in the micro scale and the macro scale with our members, not for our members. Um, and I think that's where the split you're talking about happens, where somewhere along the line, um, the, the serviced office industry, the business center industry, and the workspace industry, and the real estate industry came along, saw what we were up to, and went through sort of the, the typical arc of, you know, laughing at us being like oh you're you're that's cute um to um to being curious and starting to show up at our industry you know gatherings and conferences um to trying it themselves to then deciding oh this is what we do now um and so when when you encounter co-working throughout the world what you're really encountering is a category not a not one specific thing. And the best way I can describe co-working today in 2019, and this has been true for the last number of years, is that the word co-working is about as specific as the word restaurant. It describes, <laughs> like it describes broadly an experience and a transaction, frankly. Um, but, you know, in the same way that you could go to, uh, even in one day, you could go to multiple different restaurants. Um, 
you know, you're going to, you know, a fast casual spot or a fine dining spot, or you're going to a, um, a, a Thai noodle, you know, counter, or you're going to a big sit down Italian family style meal. Um, and none of them are necessarily wrong or bad, but they're different. And the trouble we have today is that the word co-working describes everything. And we don't really have the jargon or the language to help us understand each other. So when I go to an industry conference, I don't have to do way more work to figure out who are the who are the the community builders, who are the people who are deeply tuned to bringing people together, not simply putting butts in seats. Um, and and frankly, I think the people who have it worst are, are the people who want want to join a co working space. Um, uh, to continue the restaurant analogy, imagine firing up a you know Yelp or you know, um, or seamless one of the the restaurant delivery apps. And in, instead of having, you know, photos of the food and, and descriptions of every dish and restaurant, every restaurant was just called restaurant and every dish was just called breakfast, lunch, or dinner. That's effectively the buying experience of co-working today. And it sucks. Um, so, so, you know, how did we get here is, is a really good question. Um, and I think you know, one of the things that I, I, I as I as I'd spent a lot of time sort of watching the the meta of of this kind of thing evolve, um, any sort of new technology, and when I say technology, I'm not necessarily talking software, hardware. I'm just talking about the, the creation of a tool that helps solve a problem. You have your sort of first wave, um, uh, the the first wave of folks who come through, and they sort of bl- blind optimism to solving the problem, right? And I, I put myself in, in that category where, where you know, we just saw the, oppor- not saw the opportunity, we saw the problem and said, well, this deserves to be solved. And then there's the second wave who comes along and sees other people solving a problem and goes, that looks good, I'll do that. And what they skip is all of the time that we spend understanding the problem and all they do is really recreate the surface level stuff the open office floor plans the you know the cheeky posters and signs on the walls the um, everyone's got good coffee (laughs) everyone's got good coffee yeah so like and that i mean everyone's got good coffee is an important one let's let's not get (laughs) that that big upgrade that is a big upgrade. it is it is um but but my point here is that um you know, one of the the, the references that I've uh, I've taken some time to sort of dig into and figure out, like this has to have happened before. This is not unique to co-working. Um, and uh, came across cargo cults, which were. Are you familiar with this? No, I'd love to hear more. So, uh, so in World War II, uh, the United States uh, military created some outposts on some islands in the Pan Pacific area, broadly speaking, um, that were basically temporary military bases for, you know, either watching over another territory or whatever it might be. And as we tend to, we came in and we, you know, took some, some beautiful untouched by untouched by humans or only touched by native populations land. We paved runways, we landed planes, we brought in supplies and food and, and uh, medicine and along with it diseases and, and uh, all kinds of other nonsense. Um, And then when the war was over, we left as we tend to. Um, But the artifacts of our presence remain. And more importantly, the uh, the cultural impact of our presence remained, and when there were islands that were populated by 
you know, indigenous, you know, tribes and communities, they had been introduced to our, our drugs. And sometimes they became addicted to our drugs. They became attached to some of our, our food and supplies and things like that. Um, and their, their culture sort of irreparably changed, but they, when we leave, they don't know how to get the thing back. And so there are reports of, of, um, going of going back to these regions and finding that the tribes had built giant effigies out of tree giant tree trunks that looked like cargo airplanes and that they were seen they were seen doing dances in the runways that looked a lot like air traffic control movement and what, what was sort of understood is that these you know these tribes were impacted um, mostly negatively by by our presence, but they didn't know why. They didn't understand why these planes had landed in the first place. Why these white men had come out and provided with all of these these goodies, um, and so they could only do what they knew, which was which was pray to the gods to bring more of the, the big metal birds out of the sky. Um, and the way they do that is they create effigies and they do dances. Um, and I think that is a perfect explanation for why co-working spaces all look the same but there's a big difference in the experience and the culture between them uh it's very easy to recreate the surface level uh uh, elements without understanding the underlying culture and i think that's where the majority of the work actually needs to be done wow i love i love that story i definitely want to dig into that a little more but um I know in my own experience, I've sampled co-working spaces all over uh, many different cities across the world. And it's interesting as a freelancer because you realize quickly that how they're selling to you, they're selling to pain points of, hey, are you lonely? Come here. Sign up for our membership. Mm-hmm. Here are a bunch of cool pictures. And then once you get in, there's those things they're basically selling you on are empty, right? Or <laughs> yeah. there, I don't even know how to describe it. There's almost like a spiritual uh, emptiness uh, where yeah. they don't exist. And it's, it's really hard to explain to people. I think a lot of independents and self-employed people get, get it, but they haven't really made work better. They've just put up a bunch of better looking offices. Yep. Have, yeah, have, I totally agree. Have you read Cubed by any chance? Uh, is it Cubed or Uncubed? So the book is Cubed. It's a history of work as told through the workplace. And Yes, I, th- I think I'm quoted in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it's, yeah, it's and it tells of many similar things at different periods along the history of yes. Um And I think I'm. it sounds like you're hopeful, though, that the next wave is kind of a reversion back towards the niches and more community driven uh, spaces. Uh, But it may take a recession or financial reset to get there. Well, I mean, so I I sort of, I have a couple couple of mindsets about this. One is truthfully outside of a conversation like this, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, And to be more specific, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what other people are doing wrong. Um, that's another one of my like core fundamental philosophies of business. If I spent 
every minute I'm spending time focusing on people who are doing it wrong, I'm not spending time that time on the people who I could be serving better. Um, I do, part of our business is very intentionally helping other people who want to do it better um, because I have no desire to run multiple co-working spaces. Like I said, I don't really even want to run one, um, but it's a means to an end. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think... I, th I think what you're sort of pointing to is I was mentioning before, there's the sort of the first wave pioneers, blind optimism. Second wave is pure opportunism. Um, and I think there's a third wave that I'm starting to see. I actually saw it more when I was in Asia um, earlier this year than anywhere else before. Um, and the third wave of, of what co-working is or could be is sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, and it's the people who are aware of the, sort of cultural nuance, um, but they've also seen the cheap facsimile edition and they're like, well, there's gotta be something in between. Um, the other thing, you know, with the, 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 the folks who are those blind optimists, a lot of my peers, um, is the, the businesses they started were unsustainable. You mentioned, I think in my introduction, were one of the longest running. Um, that's not because we were the first, uh, we weren't, but most of the spaces that opened around the same time we did have either gone out of business or they've significantly changed their business model to be more of, of a service office um, or, or event rental or things like that. And, and very few uh, remain sort of this pure membership model that we run um, and, and have for, for over a decade. Um, and I think it's partly because of our, our relentless focus on on the community experience that you were talking about. So I think third wave co-working is this sort of sweet spot where people are like, okay, it's got to be sustainable, but also it, like I have to actually deliver on that sales pitch you were describing. I think you're a hundred percent right that people have gotten better at selling it than they have at executing it. Um, uh, and, and I think some of the, the, the big box co-working play, uh, organizations, the, the big heavily funded ones um, are, are, or are a big part of that, you know, they had a, a massive financial obligation to figure out how to sell it. Um, that is a bigger priority than um, actually delivering on what they sell. So, you know, if we look beyond co-working even, um, I think where, where most of my optimism for this uh, comes from is less about co-working, uh, you know, as a, as a discrete thing and more that I think people are learning that work and place are related to each other in a different way today than they were before. And more non-co-working organizations are, I think, actually taking it really seriously. Um, I th you know, I think we have a lot of work to do, but I'm very, very interested in the impact that co-working has had on people's willingness to just kind of revisit what is work? What what is what is um, you know what is the reason to have an office? What is, what are the tools we have to develop culture as technology changes and more people work remotely, um, either remotely for an employer or remotely with clients, whatever it is. Like, how do we recreate the most important parts of work, and how do we reinvent them? Then maybe they were better than they were before. Um, so I think we're at a really interesting turning point. I think there's a lot of of of, of folks that um, are are smart and and working hard at this. And actually, I think a lot of the best stuff is happening sort of adjacent to the word co-working um, anymore. Because right now, 
you know, like like we talked about before, any open space in a building is just being called, you know, called a co-working space, and it's it's um it's kind of lost a lot of its meaning. But there is still this underlying movement of people who care about what it means to bring people together, what it means to have a workplace where people look after each other, uh, what it means to build sort of positive work cultures, whether it's for you as an individual, for a group. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I believe you're right in that some sort of economic reckoning will probably push, um, push us quicker in a new direction. Um, cause right now there's, you know, w- without, without economic pressure, unfortunately, businesses tend to not change a whole lot. Right. Um, but I think that the probably one of the biggest economic pressures is hiring and companies realizing, wait a second, the best talent we have might not be where we are. Um, and that being one of the bigger fuels for remote remote work or remote hiring um, and things like that. And, and I think that remote work presents enough really different constraints than we're used to that it kind of forces a, a full rethinking uh, in order to be fully successful um that kind of stuff gets me gets me pretty excited yeah i I love that you're broadly uh excited by just improving how we work you say you don't have to go to a co-working to co-work right that's right that's right (laughs) that just tells me you know your customer right Mm -hmm. Uh, but that scares a lot of people and so what how are you thinking about helping people work better together because I, I do think ultimately this is one of the big drivers. A lot of independents I know they talk about, I want to work with other people. Uh, but it doesn't happen, right? Because we just don't have the tools. We don't have the mindsets. We don't even know what to work on with other people. Yep. What are yep. some of the experiments well, or lessons you've learned in, in terms of helping people do this? Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest ones, um, in it, I think this is like, a major design pattern for us at Indie Hall. Um, and when I think about any sort of networking experience, um, and even like, networking is another one of those words that makes a lot of people itchy. Um, and I think it's because people have had so many bad experiences with networking where it is transactional. It is about, you know, how do I get something out of you or, or what are you trying to get out of me? Um, one of the things that I think Indie Hall has allowed us to experiment with is really investigating what are the things that people build their bonds around? And it's very rarely the work itself. If you think about most work and work related collaborations, even think about like when you're in you know high school or college and you have a group project and and a lot of people have really negative experiences with group projects. And I think that that scar tissue is part of why we approach collaborative work so poorly. Um, but in, in those group projects, you're thrown into an arbitrary group where the goal is to finish the task. And the thing that binds you together, the thing that brings you together, the only thing you know you have in common is the task, the goal, the work itself. And the trouble there is the work doesn't always work. <laughs> like it doesn't always go the way you want it to, um, whether that means, you know, you get a, a bad grade or you miss a deadline or you just don't create the thing you set out to create. Um, and when you reach the finish line and the work itself is, is not 
great, which is statistically going to happen some percentage of the time. Well, what are you left with? Well, now you're just mad at a group of people for not pulling their weight or for not, not, not thinking the way you do and all these other things. And I think it all tracks back to this core problem of you were set up for failure because the only thing that bound you together was the work. And if I look at the the best collaborations, the best experiences, the the most enduring business partnerships that I've seen form throughout the Indie Hall community. It was people who built relationships before they started working together. It's back to the earlier part of our conversation where I said relationships before transactions. It's the same thing. People are approaching a collaboration as a transaction instead of a relationship. And so what we try to do is give people opportunities to build relationships with people that they might need later, but they don't need yet. Uh, they might collaborate with later, but they don't need to collaborate with now. And when you enter into a collaboration with that pre-existing relationship, with a little bit of nuanced understanding of who each other are, and with the understanding that even if this project goes belly up, we still have that thing that binds us together, you approach the work differently. The work takes a different priority, and I think the the work output itself ends up being better because you're more willing to listen to each other. You're more willing to try to understand each other because the relationship exists as space to do that. So, you know, when I, when I think about things that we actually physically or, or tangibly do, one of the most counterintuitive things we do is we try and slow people down a little bit um, from their their typical you know, business networking or, or partnership mindset. You know, when somebody comes in to Indie Hall and they're like, I need to, you know, I want to hire a programmer. I'm like, well, there's a whole bunch of them here, but you should probably get to know other people too. And, and if you actually like get to know and be known, not only will you find the programmer you're looking for, but you'll find lots of other people that you may benefit from collaborating with also in the future. Um, or, you know, bringing people's personal interests to the surface and making them a priority. When somebody joins our community, we, we strongly encourage an introduction through our online forum. It's a, our online community is a big part of our, our resource set as well because most people are not in the physical room uh, every day. And so the online community is sort of this, um, this tool to be able to access each other regardless of where you are. Um, and so we encourage people to introduce themselves, but we do that in a way where we try to undo all the bad habits that people have of introducing themselves. I'm like, you're not trying, you're not writing a professional bio here. Um, your accomplishments may be interesting and impressive, but people here aren't necessarily looking to hire you. Instead, yeah. tell me, you know, where, where you're from. Are you new to Philadelphia or you, you know, you've been here your whole life? Um, what, what interests do you have outside of work? Um, you know, people tend to build these bonds over things like, you know, movies and comic books and, and music uh, more quickly than they do over, um, you know, the latest programming language or, or otherwise. Um, so I think it's a lot of that kind of counterintuitive experience and expectations is another part is just letting people know from the very, very beginning, you know, when somebody or somebody's first impression of us outside of, um, you know, our website, which I think sends a, uh, tries to send a message um, that is congruent with Pretty all of these ideas. Yeah. Um, and, but you come in for a tour and right. our tour is not a tour of the physical space. I mean, it is, but the space is just a backdrop for describing the kinds of, 
um, things that people do or the ways that you can get to know the other people in the room. Um, and obviously you're coming there to get work done. Obviously you're coming there to be productive uh, and, and have this change of scenery that is somehow better than what you currently have. But the reason you choose Indie Hall is because we've made it easier, more possible to, to get to know the person sitting next to you because that's a cultural expectation. And because we've created all these little sort of cues and, and tools that make it easy for you to say that, you know, I'm interested in comic books. Maybe I should go every Wednesday or the next Wednesday with the group of people who are going to pick up comic books from the local comic book shop because who knows what else I have in common with them. Um, and sort of setting that as the groundwork, I think, changes what collaboration ends up looking like uh, pretty dramatically. And the, the, again, the relationships become the foundation. I love it. It uh, when I reflect back on some of the best partnerships I've had as an independent, they've all been friends first that turned into yep. something else. Right. And so yep. many people come to me and say, Hey, we should find something to work on. I think my response now will be, uh, Alex Hillman convinced me that we should, <laughs> we should focus on trying to find a friendship first. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, you know, I think, we're look, I mean, we're, we're all super busy. Um, so there's a lot of things that don't get time or attention unless we decide they're a priority. And even you know, exactly your point, people reach out to us wanting to do, you know, the word partnership usually is code for, I want you to do something for me. Um, (laughs) and so, and so, you know, I don't say we don't really do partnerships, but we, we, we build partnerships and, um, you know, I don't, uh, there's a great quote from a, a friend of mine, uh, his name is Derek neighbors. He says, you can't, um, create collaboration. You have to be a collaborator. It is an active thing. Um, and you know, the, the invite would be like, let's go get dinner or drinks. And just like, I want to get to know you more. I want to know your, your MO. What is, what is, what are your goals? What does success look like to you? What else are you working on besides this thing you approached me with? Maybe the thing you have in your mind isn't even the most valuable collaboration we could be working on, but you can't discover that unless you give it a little bit of space. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, 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 the counterintuitive reality is somebody shows up, wants to work with you. That feels good. Um, but we sort of intentionally pump the brakes and say, cool, like we should get to know each other and, um, treat it a bit more like, like a first date, um, you know, rather than a, than a wedding. So this might be a good transition. I want to throw out some words that you've used in presentations. You have a bunch of presentations posted where you have short phrases or words, and I assume you have some stories behind them. Uh, But this one might be a good transition with just how you're talking about um, creating those connections. Uh, Embrace chaos. I love that one. Um, so that one gets uh, credit. Uh, credit should be given to. I mentioned Chris Messina and Tara Hunt earlier on. That's um, that's from from their uh, citizen agency manifesto is to embrace chaos and, and sort of an idea that I learned from them. Um, what does it actually mean? The <laughs> I think when you're when you're creating, people say they they want you know these dynamic thriving ecosystems but 
they only want them so long as they work exactly as they expected them to, um, <laughs> which obviously un- undermines the whole point. So when I think embrace chaos, I think there's sort of two parts. One is acknowledge that chaos is part of the mix. It's not a bad thing. If anything, it's a good thing. Um, and then the other part of it is to be be willing to, you know, grab onto the chaos and, and, and kind of learn how to ride it, learn how to surf it. Um, you know, in our day-to-day, the day-to-day of running a co-working space is pretty chaotic. Um, there's so much that is unplanned, unexpected. Uh, a lot of it is just, you know, kind of catching a moment, talking to a person, observing a thing, hearing a thing, maybe not even, you know, saying anything. But I think, you know, w- one of the ways that we embrace chaos on a regular basis is by saying, by saying yes in a very particular way. Uh, when somebody comes to us with with an idea, however wacky it may be, um, the the goal is to find a way to say yes, uh, and that may be by listening to it and finding like the kernel of what it's really about and guiding in that direction. Um, but one of my favorite things is just to say, "That sounds awesome. What can I do to help you do that?" Um, and it's sort of this, this ninja move where I'm going to catch your, catch the energy you threw at me. And sometimes, um, you know, in a more, more, you know, if you were thinking of us as more of like a hospitality based thing, you know, whatever the customer wants you, you do. Um, and we turn it around and say, whatever the customer wants within bounds of reason they can do, and we work to empower them. So, um, embracing the chaos on, on the day to day is just sort of, I think, you know, catching the, the energy from from whomever whatever direction it's coming even if i wasn't in that particular direction myself and sort of being willing to to uh carve that wave a little bit and turn it into something uh really good or really positive um it's it's a skill it's a practice Uh, i don't think anybody is inherently (laughs) good at it but it's something we try to do every single day i love it what about infinite good is greater than finite bad um okay so this is sort of my my internal risk management philosophy um i should back up and say that people assume that as an entrepreneur i'm a a risk taker um and i don't think that's true i really dislike risks Uh, by the time i'm doing something that appears risky i have kind of evaluated it and determined that there may be some risk but the opportunity is the upside and that's really what the what what the infinite good over finite bad is if you look at anything that is being presented or you know like it's an opportunity or um really anything that you may consider risky it is really good to understand the bad in something the problems in something the risk in something but the bad tends to be pretty finite um if you can understand what the boundaries of the problem are and then turn your attention to the the upside the good i said well if i can contain the bad but the good is is effectively infinite um which in a lot of cases good things don't happen because people only focus on the one or two bad things. They say, well, you can contain the bad thing. You can mitigate the bad thing, or you can redesign it. So the bad thing isn't bad anymore, but you've taken all of the energy out of what you could be putting into the infinite good. 
just to focus on the very finite bad aspects of whatever that thing might be. What about JFDI? So JFDI is a, a personal mantra first that has kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, it, it uh, can we can we swear on this podcast, Paul? I th- I think we can. I I'm not okay. sure. <laughs> we'll see what the editor says. Uh, JFDI stands for just fucking do it. Um, and I have a tattoo on my right forearm that is in big block letters. Um, it's actually a big tattooed rectangle with the skin is the relief that says the the letters JFDI. Um, and JFDI is this reminder to me of whatever the thing that I know I, I know is the right thing to do, but I, I'm just, I'm hesitating for some reason to just fucking do it. <laughs> uh, it's it's pretty, pretty straightforward there, but what's interesting about it is it's become this sort of indie hall mantra of sorts. And even beyond indie hall, um, some friends of mine's have the tattoo turned into stickers, which are now on laptops all over the, the world. And it's, it's this sort of, reminder it's meant to be a personal reminder it's not just fucking do anything or just fucking do everything it's that one thing that you're hesitating on but if you did it you things would be good you're just you're 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 afraid of something or you're uncertain um but there's literally nothing in the way except for you to have that reminder uh mine happens to be tattooed on my forearm so i see it in the mirror when i brush my teeth um uh, I, I think a lot of folks have found that reminder uh, to be encouraging. Uh, and it's a, it's a piece of how Indie Hall works too. People, again, people come to us with an idea. We're like, that sounds great. Just do it. Just fucking do it. <laughs> I love it. It's cool that uh, I just Googled it quickly. It looks like there's a whole bunch of uh, merchandise across the web now with that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I I looked briefly at what it would mean to trademark it, and I was like, then I have to defend that trademark, and you know, I'm just gonna let it be out there in the world. And yeah, and, you don't um, want a second I, business to run, right? No, no. And honestly, again, it was it was for me first. The fact that other people identify with it at all, I think, it's just that's that's just cool. That's awesome. So, in March, you published a long form essay. Uh, talking about what you call the 10,000 independence project. And I love your timing around this. And it seemed like it was in response to maybe frustration with, uh, I don't know if people listening around the world know, but the U.S. basically went into a frenzy across the nation (laughs) to compete for Amazon to come to their city. And it was crazy amounts of money. And I'm sitting there as a freelancer and I'm trying to do the calculation. I'm saying, what if they just gave like each freelancer 25,000? It was just mind blowing how easy it would be to like ignite an ecosystem with just creative humans. Um, so maybe tell me about the, your own personal spark for starting this and uh, what you're uh, trying to uh, achieve. And I know you put it out there looking for edits and you're still evolving the idea. Yeah, yeah. So, um, if anybody wants to sort of read that long form, is very generous of you. It's a eight thousand word diatribe, um, <laughs> but uh, it's at indiehall.org/slash/10k uh, is the full full document. And um, so, so I mean, exactly like you described, I was watching these cities go head to head, which 
in itself felt really weird. Like cities should not be competing against each other. This is a rising tide, uh, uh, you know, ecosystem building 101 is the sum is greater than the parts. So the fact that Amazon strategically divided us, I thought was really frustrating. Um, but also exactly like you said, I was like, you know, they're promising 50,000 jobs and cities are doing backflips for 50,000 jobs. And granted, Philadelphia is a, is a reasonably large city. It's the sixth largest city in the U.S. But even in our city, 50,000 jobs is not that many jobs. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big number, but it's not nearly as big as I thought it would need to be in order to catch the attention right. of, you know, City Hall to be willing to invest, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and just writing the proposal um, was was maddening. And so I stayed out of it for the most part, with the exception of one one panel that I, I said yes to being on. Um, and, and that panel was really just talking about the pros and cons. Um, I made it clear I was, you know, on the con side of things with a line that kind of vibrated the room and I think planted the seed for for the document, which was, you know, fifty thousand jobs is undeniably a good thing for our city and any city that get, gets the fifty thousand jobs. But fifty thousand jobs from one company is about the worst way to do it, and that one company being Amazon is the worst worst way to do it. So maybe what we should be doing is taking a look at that goal of fifty thousand jobs and saying, what are the other ways to create fifty thousand jobs that aren't as expensive and risky. Uh, as as this Amazon proposal, um, the other thing that I said in that that uh, that panel that seemed to vibrate the room was, you know, the 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 real winner here is the loser, um, and the real winner, I should say, the winner here is the real loser, but the winner is the city who comes in second place. Because if you come in second place, you were good enough to get on Amazon's radar, but you don't have to deal with the fallout. <laughs> um, so. So a number of months went by and it kept swirling on these topics and keep talking to people. And, you know, um, Amazon ended up announcing who the, the, the cities were going to be. That was its whole own thing. Um, and I said, I need to write this down and, and turn this into something. Um, and at the same time, we were coming out of a, a phase of Indy Hall's history where we had spent a few years kind of heads down on the operation side of things because of a, a large and unexpected move. Um, to make a long story short, a relationship with a landlord ended, not on a high note. Um, and the ensuing three years or so took us out of our usual mindset of everything we've been talking about today, honestly, and very, very tactical very like getting the space getting a, a new space getting it set up learning how to be in it and so it's just kind of coming out of that phase where i'm like okay why do we exist again like what 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 am i doing here like again i'm not in this to run a co-working space why did i just spend the last three years heads down making this work what's the long term for us what are we working on for the next 10 years and then the amazon proposal kind of catalyzed around a few ideas where i said you know if if 50,000 jobs is undeniably a good thing, um, we'll, but Amazon or one company is the worst way to do it, what would be better? And you know, better would be 
five, 10,000 person companies, only a little bit better, but still better, um, 10, 5,000 person companies and so on and so forth. And if I track that kind of matrix all the way back, you know, 50,000 entrepreneurs or freelancers probably isn't the right answer either because we do need a job a job ecosystem, even though I do believe the job ecosystem will look different in the next, you know, 10 to 20, 30 years. Um, I still think we need businesses creating jobs. So 50,000 freelancers is not the right answer either, but somewhere in the middle, there's a sweet spot. And so what I realized, I started doing some more research and started doing the math around if we help 10,000 people become sustainably independent, um, statistically, the way business and firm creation works, at least in our state data, is you know roughly eighty percent of businesses never grow past one person. So, what if instead of glorifying giant companies, what if we start to glorify the solo business, the one-person company, and then the opportunities to collaborate and and build bigger things together without being a giant corporation? Um, as as an not not an alternative, but maybe a really good one, maybe one that we should be investing more in. Um, and then, if you start running those numbers out, you know the twenty percent that do grow past one employee, they hire their first, and then some percentage of those will hire their second. Some percentage of those will hire five, and so on and so forth. And you sort of run those numbers out, and by helping ten thousand people become sustainably independent, the math suggests that we would create almost 80,000 jobs, including the initial 10,000 independents, um, over the same 10-year period that Amazon was offering us 50,000 jobs. And so my proposal was, why don't we look at what it takes to help those 10,000 people, those initial 10,000 people first, um, go from surviving to thriving, go from, I know how to pay my bills most months to my bills are covered. I'm saving for retirement. I can go on vacation. My healthcare is, I can afford it. Um, you know, I, it's not the, the typical feast and famine that, that a lot of freelancers go through. We can teach that. Those are learnable skills. I've learned them. A lot of my friends have learned them. And I've also part of my career has been teaching and helping people learn how to do that. So I know it's doable. We just need to do it at scale. Um, and, and it's scaling the small thing instead of scaling the big thing, um, which, which feels right to me. So, um, so as we laid that out in, in this essay, um, the essay was, was, you know, I think a lot of people read it as a plan. Um, and it wasn't, um, it looks like a plan. It's got pieces of a plan, but, um, the reality is that it's, it's more of a way of thinking. It's about taking the big problem and breaking it down into smaller things that we actually have the ability to work on without without anybody else giving us permission or resources. Yeah. Um, and and the beautiful thing is, and I said this explicitly in the document. I said we don't need city hall to fight, you know, to to give us anything like Amazon was demanding. Right. If they do, if they do help us out, that would be really great. But this is what we can accomplish without the help of, of the city government and city resources. Imagine what we could do if we had a little bit more. So, you know, if we fast forward to today, and literally this week I was on the phone with um, some, some of my contacts at City Hall. The Commerce Department reached out. They're very interested in, in learning how they can be helpful. We're talking about some actual things that they can do that don't require the city to spend more money, but instead to allocate resources that they've already allocated, just they're 
I think the problem is, is independent businesses, these solo businesses like, like yours, Paul, and, and frankly, like mine and, and lots of my friends are a blind spot for, for, right. for governments and, and organizations. They just, it's, it's not that they don't, it's, in some cases, they don't know we exist. I was in a meeting with, with the <laughs> Commerce Department. I literally think, you know, out of 15 people, I think maybe two have ever met an actual freelancer. <laughs> so, like, that, that's, so that's a real problem. But, but you know, we can, we, can, we can shine a light in the blind spot and be like, hey, gang, your workforce doesn't look the same anymore. And the way you support it, therefore, needs to change. Let me show you where they are. And as luck would have it, I run a co-working space <laughs> and that that is more happenstance than anything else. But the other cool thing is, is like the co-working spaces of the world back to our conversation from earlier are reasonably well networked. Um, and so the ability to activate, you know, resources, education, programming, and support through co-working spaces to actually support the, the, the independent ecosystem is a, is a way more doable today than it was 10 years ago. And that, to me, suggests that we're at the inflection point where we should be doing something. So, you know, the next 10 years of Indie Hall, the goal is to help those 10,000 people become and stay independent. And that number, by the way, that's a Philadelphia goal. Um, but what's been cool is how, how much this has resonated with folks in other cities and you know, places around the country and around the world, um, part of why we're talking. And, you know, for, for me, that that my hope would be that anything we figure out in Philadelphia becomes part of the model that can be used to help build thriving business ecosystems that actually match the century that we're in, um, in, in places around the world. I love it. I, I didn't read the memo or essay or diatribe as a plan. I actually read it as a call for people to dream in a new direction and that's why I loved Good. it so much. Like the title of my podcast is Reimagine Work. And yeah. I similarly do not think we can solve work's problems by pointing out all the flaws. I think we need to dream in a new direction. And I love what you're doing uh, with this. So keep it going. I'll be rooting for you. Happy to help. And um, I, I really think this is uh, this kind of thinking is just going to unleash so much creative uh, potential in the economy and the way people actually want to work. No, thank you. I, uh, like I said, the response has been very positive. Um, it's, it's allowed me to reconnect with a lot of folks who, you know, just cause life gets busy. I've fallen out of touch with, you know, old friends, old colleagues. Um, it's been really cool to see every, you know, everyone who shows up has, I mean, just, just like you shared with me, the the document was more like almost like a Rorschach test where like everyone sees sees it in their their perspective, their angle. There's a thing that really stands out to them. And that matters a lot to me is to see what are the patterns and what stands out to people. Um, again, this goes back to my, my core thesis from before. The only the thing I'm gonna build is gonna be the thing that ma- that matches the pattern. So having more people reach out, having read it or read part of it because it is kind of long um, and say, you know, I read up to this point and this thing really got my gears turning. I want to know what that thing is because there's a good chance you're not the only one. Uh, there's a good chance that maybe your articulation of it is a little bit different, but there's, there's a common thread and that, that becomes the, the glue that can bring together, you know, different, 
individuals, different organizations, different resources, different ideas, all under this one banner of a goal that, you know, even if we don't reach, you know, the 10,000 independents or 50,000 jobs, which I think the number is super achievable, even if we don't, let's say we only do 8,000 jobs, we still created 8,000 jobs, <laughs> like that's still a win. Yeah, so like, there's no, there's no way to lose here. And in addition to that, all the connections and relationships that are being built through, through the process, um, you know, we could create 10 jobs and I'd be happy because of all of the, the connections and relationships that have happened along the way. Again, I think we will create far more than that, but um, the, the, the good, the, the, the infinite good in this is not the jobs. The infinite good is, as you said, the rethinking reimagining and the connections that are built along the way. I love it. Where do you want people to reach out to either follow some of the things you're writing or if they want to connect, learn more about Indie Hall, where would you point them? Yeah. So I'm pretty active on Twitter uh, at Alex Hillman. Um, my, my blog is dangerouslyawesome.com. Uh, you can check out lots of past essays and articles about co-working and community building and things like that. Um, I mentioned indiehall.org slash 10 K for the 10 K independence project. Um, there's a, a newsletter that you can sign up for on dangerouslyawesome.com as well, where I periodically share, you know, the stuff that we're working on, new articles, new new resources, podcasts that I've been on, like this one, uh, and, and things like that as well. So if you're into this kind of conversation and want more, those are some great places to go check things out and say hello. Um, if you have any passing through Philadelphia, come meet us at Indie Hall. Uh, come spend a day uh, working with us, uh, see what it's all about. I'd love to meet you in person. Fantastic. It was great talking to you today, Alex, and hope you have a fantastic day in Philly. Thanks, man. You too, Paul. Thank you for listening to the Reimagine Work Podcast. It's been such a fun journey to start this podcast, start getting random feedback from around the world, and to continue to meet and have conversations with such amazing people who really helped me learn and in some ways have started to become my friends. I think a podcast, I've started to push a lot of people to create podcasts can be this hack almost to uh, jump through the hoops of the awkwardness of networking that people don't like and actually get down to have a deeper conversation and I found it's been pretty cool to do that. Um, I want to keep this as basically a fun creative endeavor. I don't want to have ads. I think there are a lot of ads out there that you can basically just give a coupon code you get pretty small dollars on the advertising. I've looked into it. Um, I think it's kind of annoying when you're listening to things, though I think podcast advertising is probably the least bad of any uh, advertising I've seen. Anyway, if you feel compelled to support the podcast, I have a Patreon page. Right now, that is probably the main way to support. So I think for me, asking for contribution or support is really a selfish motive. I'd like to dedicate more of my time to creating, writing, helping people, having these conversations, and just spending a lot more time thinking deeply, reading books, uh, writing about these topics. And if you think that's something worth doing, uh, I'd love to see the show of support. If you have feedback on the podcast, guests you want me to talk to, want to make comments on my monotone voice, 
you can send them my way. I take any and all comments and just love the support. Uh, Thanks so much for the people listening and let's keep reimagining work. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.